All right, welcome back to Third String, another great data podcast. And those of you who are listening to us for the first time, maybe you're on Anchor, we're a brand new Anchor podcast. We just shifted over to the Anchor platform and we're very excited about it, but I wanted to take about 30 seconds and tell you a little bit about Third String and who we are. So I'm Zach, I'm one of the three founders of Third String and uh, I don't do sports for, for a profession, but it's my biggest hobby. So you can always find a sports game of some type on in my house. You can find me following along very closely with all of the the major professional sports leagues. And I'm joined by Ishan Nath, another co-founder. He's on the other line here. And Ishan's a, a PhD uh, economics student at University of Chicago. So he's really, really good at the number side of sports and is one of the most knowledgeable sports fans I've ever met. Uh, also on the line with me is Pete. And Pete, uh, also not a professional sports analyst, but he uh, is an analyst, an international security analyst by day and a sports fan by night, also our resident ACC booster. So Pete and Ishan, guys, welcome back to Third String. Thanks, Zach. Hey, good to be back. Yeah, I'm really excited about this Anchor thing. I'm hoping to hear from uh, a lot of our listeners on Anchor. If you're listening to this through Anchor, you can contact us right through the app. Just uh, hit the hit the feedback button and record a message for us or leave us a written note. We'd love to read it on the podcast or even play your comment on the podcast. Uh, you can also just reach out uh, to us on Twitter at third string pod or uh, at third string pod at gmail.com. And that brings me to my final topic. Pete is going to be putting together a fantasy baseball league for us and our listeners. So we're, we're going to be playing in this fantasy league. We'd love to play with you. We have a limited number of spots, obviously. I think we'll cap it at 12 or 14. But if you are interested in playing in a fantasy baseball league with us, definitely reach out. You can, uh, you can find Pete uh, who manages our Twitter handle at third string pod or third string pod at gmail.com and uh, get plugged into that so we can get it rolling. We'll probably be probably be uh, pushing that out in the next week or so. So definitely drop us a line if you want to do that. It'll be a lot of fun. Okay, so I think that gets all that out of the way. Today we have lined up a, a the beginning of our MLB previews. We're going to be doing three of these, uh, East, Central, and West for both leagues. Today we're going to kick things off with the East, the American League East, and the National League East. Um, and I just have some sort of some general the general themes for both the AL and the NL. Some general questions I want to cover. Um, I'll start off with with this one, Ishan and Pete. What team in the American League East do you think is most improved after the offseason? We've seen a lot of transactions. Most recently, the big the big blockbuster, JD Martinez to Boston. Uh, there was a lot of speculation of where he was going. Lots of people thought it was going to eventually be Boston. It was uh, signed a big deal that was held up and and sort of. Uh, imperiled at the last moment by a medical issue but that's cleared he's going to be a red sock red, red sock red Sox member i never know how to say that but anyway uh the yankees also adding giancarlo stanton to the uh to now the three musketeers of stanton sanchez and judge so some really big blockbuster moves in the al east what do you guys think uh what team is coming out as the most improved after this offseason activity i think it's got to be the yankees they had an mvp uh, also, let's not forget that they made some midseason ac- acquisitions last year that were really big, and the su- su- full season of Sonny Gray will be big for them. Yeah, I I like that that call on the Red Sox. I've been I've been wrestling with this one for a while, really, since we decided to to start talking AL East, NL East to kick it off. I think it's between the Yankees and the Red Sox. Go figure. But I'm actually leaning towards the Red Sox. I think the JD Martinez acquisition is huge, but I think what is going to make it really interesting in that division this year coming up is the fact that I think the the Red Sox have the better starting five. I think when you look at the fact that we have um, 
David Price coming back as probably their number three starter right now, in my opinion, behind Chris Sale and Rick Porcello. You look at those three guys, I just don't see the Yankees matching up one through three in that starting rotation. I think both teams are going to have a fantastic uh, offensive prowess. I think uh, we're going to see uh, the Bronx Bombers coming back, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But I think it's really going to be the pitching of the Red Sox that's going to set this apart. I still think the Yankees are a 90-win team this year. I think the Red Sox are still probably five to six games behind them. Uh, but overall, I, I think the Red Sox are kind of getting back to where they need to be to truly compete with the Yankees here uh, in 2018. So what do you think that J.D. Martinez signing does for the Red Sox, Pete? Because the Red Sox last year were third last in the league in or sorry, fourth last in the league in total home runs. They hit 168 as a team. Compare that to the Yankees, who were tops in the league with 241 home runs hit over the course of the season. And that was, of course, before the Yankees signed Giancarlo Stanton, the reigning NL home run king. So, um, you know, the J.D. Martinez signing, I think, was at the very least necessary for the Red Sox to compete. But but you're saying that they're the most improved over the course of the offseason. So uh, I guess how does the J.D. Martinez signing fit into that? You mentioned the starting pitching that was signed. What about the Martinez signing, though? You think that makes them a, a much better ball club? Uh I, I do. I, I'm not necessarily saying that it's going to make them a, a better ball club really uh, top to bottom, but I think the area where you look at the Red Sox last year uh, and really what they were doing down the stretches, pitching wasn't a problem. I know the David Price injury threw a lot of wrenches into their system there, uh, but it really seemed to be their ability to, to kind of get those extra base knocks, to, to get the, the quality RBIs and innings 7, 8, and 9 that was really, really missing from that Red Sox organization specifically in September last year uh, that I think if you looked at the first few months of the 2017 season the Red Sox and the Yankees were not necessarily on pace to do fantastic things mathematically but they both had the look of being great playoff teams and the Red Sox really fell off late in the season I don't know if it was an exhaustion factor but that seemed that that team just seemed to to kind of crumble uh down there offensively. Uh, and I think getting a quality outfielder who's going to be able to uh, fill in positionally occasionally, but probably be primarily a DH, uh, but be able to get those those extra base knocks late in the game is going to be impressive. I mean, you look at, you look at him, J.D. Martinez specifically, uh, he's got a, a war of 4.1. I mean, he's just, he's doing a lot more for them than they had in the past couple years offensively. Uh, I think his relationship with David Price is one of the reasons he's there in Boston. And I think a team who we've seen historically kind of break apart in the clubhouse is going to be a little more locked in this year than they've been in past years. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, so, sorry, go ahead, Ishan. Uh, I was going to say, so I have a pretty different view of the situation than Pete. I think there's just these two teams, the Red Sox and Yankees, I think there's just so little to separate them. It's probably going to come down to a bounce of a ball here and there, a couple games at the end of the season. But I actually feel a little bit better about the Yankees pitching than the Red Sox pitching for the following reason, which is that uh, I feel like there's five starters on the Yankees who I feel okay about. Uh, they don't have that. I don't, I don't view Severino as in the same class as Chris Sale, so I don't think they have the same superstar at the top, but with Severino, T Tanaka, Gray, Montgomery, and Sabathia, I feel like they have five guys you can trust. Whereas on the Red Sox, I'm not sure I really, really trust more than a couple guys. So there's Sale, Pomerantz, and Porcello. I'm still like a little skeptical of them. Pomerantz has control issues sometimes. They both have had FIPS in the low fours the last couple years. And then David Price, like who knows what's actually going on in his head and whether he can get his confidence back up. I mean, he was like a $217 million long reliever at the the end of the year and then uh you know Stephen Wright is really like a below average fifth starter and so in the rotation I would actually say that they're more even than uh Pete's Pete's opinion uh 
and, and maybe even give a little edge to the Yankees, but then even more so, I think that that the depth and dominance of the Yankees bullpen with Chapman, Batances, Conley, Robertson, it's just fireballing 100-mile-an-hour relievers from like the fifth, sixth inning onwards, and I feel like that really helps you win a lot of close games. Uh, and so I would actually take the pitching of the Yankees a little bit ahead of the pitching of the Red Sox, and I think the Yankees are a slight favorite to win the division. Um because obviously they have that awesome offense. To me, the biggest question for the Yankees is whether they can fill a couple of these holes in their lineup. It looks like second and third base, like Tyler Wade and Brandon Drury are listed as their starters right now. I know uh, it's not clear who's going to start at those positions. And, you know, maybe is 21-year-old Gleyber Torres, who uh, had an OPS of 860 last year at, was it AA or AAA? Yeah, I think it was AA. Is he ready to take the... Yeah, so... But if he's not ready, you know, there's a couple holes in the infields for the Yankees, and the Red Sox really don't have any holes. They have like nine really solid, well above average starters in their lineup, so that's where I would give them a little bit of an edge. But uh, I'm viewing the Yankees as a slight favorite in the division. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, I am also going to go with the Yankees, and I think all your points about the pitching pitching was really good. And uh, I'm just going to correct myself. I mentioned Double A for Glaber Torres, um, and I was going to mention him because he is is overall ranked uh, by MLB.com as the number one prospect in the game. He split his time last year between Double and Triple A, so 23 games at Triple A, tw- uh, 32 in Double A. But yeah, just absolutely ridiculous numbers. And so there is a big question of whether or not he'll be ready. There's talk about him filling that third base hole uh, with the the Yankees losing Todd Frazier to the Mets, and we can talk about that. Um, but yeah, I think looking at the Yankees, I'm also with you, Ishan. I'm not convinced that the the Red Sox staff is stronger. I mean, you have Chris Sale, who's a genuine Cy Young contender every year and has been for several years and no doubt will be again this year. So to me, he's the the no doubt uh, top of the the uh, uh, the peak in the list of all these pitchers. But after that, like you mentioned, Ishan, it gets real shaky. Rick Porcello won the Cy Young a year and a half ago, but he he did so despite the advanced metrics not looking good. He just had a good ERA and win total, which is, you know, win total is, is old school stats and it doesn't really mean anything. And he was terrible last year. David Price, also terrible last year or injured half the year. Um, and Drew Pomeranz, a little shaky. Stephen Wright, like you mentioned. I mean, he's he's fifth in that rotation for a reason. He's not that good. You look at the Yankees, they don't have a Chris Sale type figure. Um, but Severino is is going to do well for them, I think. Sonny Gray was a great acquisition end of last season. Masahiro Tanaka, I think you kind of know what you're getting with him. He's he's a good pitcher. Um, Jordan Montgomery is, I think, maybe a question mark there. And then CeCe Sabathia, a question mark just because he's he's getting a little bit older, I think. But overall, good. And then you already mentioned, but Dylan Batances, Chapman, uh, Conley, another late season acquisition by the Yankees last year. I think that was a fantastic pickup. So their bullpen, I think, is way better than, than the Red Sox bullpen. And then on the offensive side of the ball, you're still looking at a lineup that includes Stanton, Judge, Sanchez, Didi Gregorius, who's pretty darn good, uh, Aaron Hicks, and Gregory Bird. And, uh, and Greg Bird, people think, might take a big step forward this year, too. So um, I, I've, if I'm the Red Sox, I'm pretty scared to pitch that lineup. Um, if I'm a Yankees fan, I'm pretty excited about the prospects of beating up on the Red Sox this year because I, I think they have the edge. Now, um, we could talk about projections a little bit. The... Um, the Fangraphs projections that I was looking at have the Red Sox winning the division um, by a narrow margin. So the Red Sox winning 94 games, the Yankees winning 93. But I personally, if I were a betting man, would, would put the Yankees, uh, put money on the Yankees to win the division. Also, quick shout out, the Yankees... Uh... 
at on SpotTrack.com, their their payroll is listed right now as 157 million dollars, which is eighth in the major leagues. So uh, the Yankees winning their division with a non-top five payroll would be kind of a first in my lifetime. You know, I grew up with those Yankees have a twice the payroll of the rest of baseball sort of era, and uh, it's cool. The Yankees have all these like homegrown young prospects, and yes, they have this giant Stanton contract now, but that's kind of the outlier on the team instead of the norm. Yeah, Brian Cashman, I think, continues to be the uh, the GM of the the GM to make all other GMs jealous in baseball right now. That he is figuring out a way to do it year in and year out. I think the Yankees are going to be stupid if they let him walk here soon, because I think his contract is due to be up after this year as well. So that'll be that'll be interesting to watch. So. Do you, you guys over under on the Yankees winning 90 games this year? I'm taking the over. How about you? Yeah, 90, I think they win. Yeah, I, I think they win 94, 95. Yeah, I was. I would definitely take it over on the 90. If if we're putting the number at like a 94, 95, it, it'd be a harder choice for me. I would I would say they win 95 games. That's my guess. So speaking of these Fangraphs projections, how about Fangraphs having the Blue Jays, who were 76 and 86 last year, in line to win 87 games, the run differential of plus 61? If you take the Fangraphs projections seriously, that would put the Blue Jays in the second wildcard spot. Buy or sell the Blue Jays as a legit contender. Yeah, I know. I I, I think that's I think that's over overestimating Toronto's chances, but. I also think they underperformed quite a bit last year, and I think there'll be some regression or maybe we should say progression to the mean this year. So I think better than last year's performance is something that we can expect, but I, I think we're overestimating their uh, their chances for success a little bit there with those projections. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sell this. I like the direction Toronto is going in for this year right now based on the pickups of Randall Gritchick and Curtis Granderson. Uh, but overall, they're... There is just nothing stable in that organization right now. I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see what they do at the All-Star break because they have a couple big contracts that are getting ready to expire. So I think we'll know by uh, mid-season if Toronto is going to be a contender for the next three to four years or if they're, uh, they're a couple years of, of really racing to the top of the AL East or, or behind them. I, I just don't know what to think, so I can't buy on this team yet. Who are those big contracts? You're talking about Tulowitzki and Martin, $20 million each? Yep. Yep, those those were the two I was tracking on, and then I can't remember off the top of my head. There was one more. Let me pull it up for you. Donaldson makes twenty three million, but he's still a superstar, so I view that as a little different than these guys who are more overpaid. Donaldson should be on his last year as well, I believe. Got it. But let me check. I had that written down here somewhere. Well, I'll just jump on yeah. that real quick. So, I mean, Go when ahead. I'm looking at the Blue Jays depth chart, this doesn't strike me. Uh, as a so Fangraphs, Ishan, you mentioned has the this ball club as a 76 win. Uh, I'm sorry, a, an 87 win team. And when I look at this depth chart, just this offense doesn't sound like it. So Josh Donaldson, we know he's really good. He'll probably be really good again this year. But then Kevin Pillar, Russell Martin, Troy Tulowitzki, uh, Justin Smoke, Randall Gritchick. These guys are all getting older. I mean, Pete, you mentioned the recent pickup of Curtis Granderson. Getting older, not the productive players that they once were. Um, on, on and off the DL, I mean, look, Tulowitzki, uh, it's, it's, I would say there's a good chance he doesn't play 100 games this year. So I, I don't know about this. I mean, the Blue Jays pitching staff, too, Marcus Stroman, J.A. Happ, Marco Estrada, um, you know, decent decent guys there. You'll get some good production, I think, especially out of Marcus Stroman. Um, but I don't know if we're going to see 87 wins from them. I think that they 
uh, are more likely going to be in the in the fourth spot in the division, uh, probably just ahead of the Orioles. Oh, fourth spot. Wait, who does that put in the third spot? What's that? I still think they're going to wait. Who would that put in the third spot? Um. Oh, you know what? Yeah. I take that back, actually, because the Rays have been, you know, executing a fire sale over the past few weeks. So I think the Rays will probably tumble to the bottom. The Fangraphs projections I'm looking at have them in fourth. I think we'll probably see Red Sox, Yankees, Jays, Orioles, Rays. So yeah, still in the third spot, but not at 87 wins. Probably just ahead of the Orioles with like an like an 82 win campaign. So yeah, so as you mentioned, the Rays have their fire sale. Orioles don't really have enough pitching for even you know a wildly optimistic projection to right. have them contend. By the way, I agree on the Blue Jays. Just to add on there, I I think they win about half their games, like eighty one to eighty three range or something. Uh, so so not not that much to talk about with the Rays and Orioles. So maybe we should focus on does Machado get traded at the deadline. I mean, you have this guy who's a true superstar who is going to be a free agent, get a massive contract, almost certainly not coming back. Orioles are going to be probably pretty far out of contention. It seems like they have to trade him, right? But how much can you really get for a half season of a superstar? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think a lot of it depends on how Machado is doing this season because they know that they have a special talent there. I mean, um, at the beginning of last season, I was mentioning... Uh, Manny Machado alongside names like Nolan Arenado is one of the best third basemen in baseball and obviously Chris Bryant but I think he's sort of distinguished himself as the best far and away um, but Machado did not have a great year last year and so there's a question about whether or not he is showing some regression and if that's going to stick around for his career or if that's just a, a short-lived thing so I think a lot of it comes down to how does he do this year and if he's having a really good year, then it could could be a good sell-high opportunity for the Orioles, and I think we're more likely to see them try to make a move there. On the other hand, if he's not doing well, I think they're more likely to hold on to him um, because they know they're not going to get a big return for him. But I, I, would, I would bet on Machado to have a pretty big first half of the season um, and for him to get traded and for the Orioles just to look to get a prospect haul in return because they know they're... They're going to have to be in a rebuilding phase because they don't have good starting pitching, starting pitching, and they, they need to start rebuilding at this point. It'll also be interesting moving Manny Machado back to short after he's been at third base here for the last couple of years since evidently he is a natural shortstop. Yeah, I think that could be interesting to kind of reinvigorate him for yeah, the first I think couple you're right. months of the he season. He said he's really excited about that, so that's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Well, I... So just real quick on the Orioles, I think the Orioles are one of the most disappointing teams of the last five years. Like they were so close to exploiting that window in the yeah. AL East, finally putting someone up there who wasn't the Yankees or the Red Sox, who are just the perennial favorites in the division. Uh, I think Buck Showalter, unfortunately, if he does not get into the playoffs this year, is out of a job in Baltimore. I really like him as a manager, but the Orioles just seem to be that team who was always on the verge and could just never, ever get anything going. So they've they've just been disappointing. I, I think we're about to see a fire sale in Baltimore come uh, probably July of this year. I mean, speaking of disappointment, the, the Blue Jays too. Like That was a really stacked lineup when they had yeah. uh, you know Donaldson, Tulowitzki, Jose Bautista. They had a whole bunch of superstars lined up for that NLC or a- ALCS season a couple of years ago. So definitely agree. There were a few years where there were some different teams at the top. Of course, before that, there were the Joe Madden Rays. So it's been a fun decade in the AL East where it's not just Yankees, Red Sox, Yankees, Red Sox. Uh, but it looks like that might be coming to an end, at least for a while. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the Orioles have gotten themselves in this hole by just doling out bad contracts. I mean, Chris Davis is owed $115 million over the next five years by the Orioles. 
And this is the same Chris Davis who last year um, hit 26 home runs, which is fine until you realize that his average was 215 and his WRC plus, a measure of the, the runs created, was 92 when the average is 100. So lower is worse. So he's basically a below average run creator as a batter. And they're paying him $23 million a year to do that. And that's just one of the the bad contracts that's saddling the Orioles front office. And in, until they offload some of those, they're not going to be able to to generate any real success. So final thoughts on the East. I have the Yankees winning the division, the Red Sox winning the first wild card. And the Blue Jays not a real contender, so really a two-team race. What do you guys have? I have the exact same thing, unfortunately. I would love to see... Uh, it'd be a little more competitive, but yeah, I don't. I don't think anyone outside of the Yankees and the Red Sox really do anything out of the division this year. Wait, I thought you had the Red Sox winning the division. No, I had the Yankees. Remember, I said the Yankees oh, oh. Uh, were a, like a ninety-win team at least, and then the the Red Sox five or six games behind them. Oh, I see. Got it. Okay, so Zach, same, right? Yep, same exact, same exact lineup. Oh, I've got some. Uh, all three of I know, us. Kind of boring to all agree. I've got some, uh, some over under questions though. So let's just go over under real quick through the five win loss projections for each team. We've talked already about the Blue Jays, um, eighty seven wins. I think we're all agreed they're, they're we're taking the under there. But so Yankees ninety four wins over under. Push. Over. Okay. Uh, Red Sox, 93 wins over under. Just barely under. Under. I'm going to go under, and I'm going to go under by actually a few games. I'm going to, I'm going to say the Red Sox win, uh, 90 games this year. I think, you know, for some of the pitching deficiencies that we talked about, uh, we'll see that. And I, I also think they haven't improved their offense enough. Um, I mean, with the addition of JD Martinez, they might hit 190, 195 home runs this year, but I, I haven't seen them do a lot to change that. So I'm going to go. 90 wins. Okay, we Blue Jays, we I think we all said under, right? Yep. Yep. All right, Rays 78 wins. Under. Yeah, I'm going I'm under. going under in in light of recent events, definitely under. Uh Steven Souza Jr's out. Um yeah, not uh it's not going to be pretty for Tampa Bay fans. Um okay, Orioles 75 wins over under. Under. Uh yeah, under close. Yeah, I, I think I'm actually leaning push on on that one, but uh we'll see. Okay, anything else on AL East before we move on to National League East? Let's do the NL. All right. So, National League East, I started off our American League discussion by asking which team is most improved after the offseason. What do you guys think about for the National League East? Most improved after the offseason? I mean, I think the Phillies and Braves will make a a push forward just or take a step forward just because, you know, they have a lot of young players and you expect them to to get better, but I actually think the biggest single addition in this division is going to be Adam Eaton returning from his season long injury for the Nats. Uh, I think that Eaton Taylor Harper outfield is going to be ready to just destroy people. And with that infield too, of Rondon Turner, Murphy Zimmerman, uh, that's a pretty stacked lineup. And when you put that with Scherzer, Strasburg and Gonzalez at the top of their rotation, uh, I think the Nats, I thought the Nats had a case for having the best roster in baseball last year. I think that's definitely possible again this year. And then when you put that together with uh, not having a lot of competitive teams in their division, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Nats just truck everybody. 
Yeah, you uh, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. I actually think the Nats have the best rotation in baseball, and there's some rumors going around right now that Jake Arrieta is getting close to signing with the Nats, and I think Jake Arrieta is a Scott Boris client, and there's something about the Nationals front office and Scott Boris that seems to get along with all the all the guys between Harper and Strauss and, and everyone else with Scott Boris. So I wouldn't be surprised if Jake Arrieta shows up there too as well, which will shake up that starting rotation a little. Uh, but I think based on that rotation and the, the great points you made on the outfield prowess right now, we also didn't mention Anthony Rendon uh, sitting at third base, who I think was kind of the unsung hero of that team last year. Uh, I, I think the Nats are, are trucking. It, it wouldn't surprise me if they uh, dip a little this year just based on how the Nats seem to ebb and flow more than any other team I can find uh, but yeah I, I agree with you on that one Ishan. so I, I'm gonna take a different tack here I do agree that the re-edition of Adam Eaton is going to be a big deal for the Nats I don't really I, I didn't think about that in the question of most improved after the offseason because I was thinking you know, in terms of transactions and, and additions roster additions in that way so in that sense I would pick the New York Mets actually now we all know that they really underperformed last year um, not unlike the Blue Jays, actually, just because of injuries, the injury bug hit their what seemed like pretty much their entire pitching staff. And this is a really talented pitching staff uh, led by, you know, Noah Syndergaard, uh, Jacob deGrom, guys who can who can really throw fireballs. Um, but they all got injured at one point or, or another and were out for large chunks of the season. Um, so the Mets just really did not do well. But this season, they acquired Jason Vargas, who had a big comeback year. After uh, Tommy John surgery, um, looks like a different pitcher, although he had some regression to the mean in the second half. He's still definitely an above-average pitcher. Um, Jay Bruce, they locked up for three more years. Um, so they, they've added some talent. They've added a, a veteran, too, and Adrian Gonzalez after the the Braves released him on waivers. And it's not like he's going to really, um, really you know, be a game-changer at the plate, but I think just having a veteran around the clubhouse, someone who's you know been... Uh, been at the highest level of the game for a long time is, is good. So I think the Mets are looking like the most improved. Obviously, there's a big question mark over whether or not they will be able to remain healthy. But I think just based on an offseason alone, they're the most improved. But totally agree with you guys on, on the points about the Nationals. Um, and and I want to talk about Jake, Jake Arrieta a little bit. So what do you guys think the addition of Jake Arrieta does? I've seen all the chatter, too. There's talk about him also potentially going to the Phillies. But I think the Nats are the... Uh, the most probable landing spot. So how do you think that changes the picture? And do you have thoughts on uh, my New York Mets suggestion for most improved? I could definitely see that happening. I think the the Mets, if they get their rotation healthy, they're the only real threat to make this division have any kind of a race that even lasts into the second half of the season. Uh, I also just want to disagree a little with Pete that they currently have the best rotation. I think if they add Arietta, I could see the case, but uh, Fangraphs has them fifth in total projected rotation war behind the Astros, Indians, Dodgers, and Cubs. I think right now, if I had to pick a rotation, I would have to go with either the Astros or the Cubs for the best rotation. Uh, if they add Arietta, I would I would start to see that change. Um, so obviously, I don't want Arietta to go to the Nats because uh, I don't want to have to face him in the playoffs as a fan of the Cubs. Um, I would love to see him sign with the Phillies, get a young team, uh, get that bump up towards contention. It would be a little bit like when the Cubs signed John Lester in 2015. Um, it's that sort of first star to push them uh, upward. In terms of what the Arietta edition would do if it happens, uh, I've watched Jake Arietta pitch a lot the last few years, and I think that it was really, I think the the peripherals 
and the eye test is a little bit more alarming than maybe the headline numbers in terms of how much he might decline over the next few years. So last year, his fastball, which was consistently in the 96-97 range, even late into games the prior couple of years, last year it was down 92-93 early in the season, and his arm strength built up a little, but it was still 93-94 later in the season, and his control was just all over the place pretty often. He still got a lot of outs just because... All of his pitches move so much. That slider just dives, and he's got so many breaking pitches, and the fastball runs in on right-handers and away from left-handers. So he got a lot of swings and misses, but the walk rate was creeping up to, like, really alarming levels for a star pitcher. And, uh, you know, he still dominated at the end of the season, and he's still really good in the playoffs. He got their only win against the Dodgers in the NLCS. So he's still a star, but... uh, on a four or five year contract, I could really see that, see that starting to slip after a couple of years. Yeah, I think last year Fangraphs had uh, Jake Arrieta as the largest single uh, decline in fast average fastball velocity with a minus two point six miles an hour, which is, I mean, maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually a ton when you're looking at a large sample size across hundreds of pitches. I mean, there's there's a clear difference in how he's throwing with his arm. And I think this is this is why it's taken so long to get Jake Arrieta signed because most teams are really hesitant. I mean, he's a Boris client, right? So you know that Boris is going to be pushing for the longest term, most uh, most uh, player friendly contract he can, and it's hard to get Boris to bend on this. And teams are un, unwilling to shell out a ton of money for a guy that they think is on the decline. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. Now his ceiling remains as an above average above average starter, but he's not going to be a staff ace. Um, ever again, I don't think. So the Nats have to be going in with eyes wide open. I think they'll get a deal, a deal done in the next week or two. But um, I, I think it's just taken so long because teams are unwilling to lock him down to a large, a large uh, deal. It's also don't possible. Don't you love that when the just real quick? Don't you love that when the eye test and the numbers say the exact same thing? I didn't, I didn't know that stat, but yeah. uh, that fits perfectly with what I saw on TV. Yep, yep. It's, I know it's it's pretty awesome to see. I mean, it's not awesome to see the decline. I feel bad for Arietta because of the decline, but it's just it's cool when yeah, like you say, in the what you're seeing on TV is like, oh yeah, I'd see it backed up by the numbers. It's awful timing too for Arietta because, by the way, my dad met Jake Arietta at the Austin airport last oh, nice. year and got an autograph. Yeah, he actually he, he lives in Austin, nice. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm I'm a huge Jake Arietta fan. I have an autographed photo of him sitting literally two two feet away from me right now. That's awesome. Um, it's just terrible timing from his perspective in the sense that that run from the middle of like June 2015 to June 2016 you know, started and ended roughly by those no hitters when he had like an ERA under one for a 20 some start stretch. I don't have the numbers in front of me. That was really the best year of pitching. I think potentially in the history of major league baseball, definitely that I've ever seen by a player. So like if Jake had been a free agent literally one year earlier, he would have gotten like, you know, Clayton Kershaw type money. And then now he's like, who knows what the contract's going to end up being, but like definitely poorly timed on when he's a free agent for him. Well, Pete, as a as a Nats fan, I want to hear your your thoughts on whether or not you want Arietta to come over because what it might mean for you know your team uh, giving up salary cap space for the next few years since he's a Boris client will probably want a three to five year deal. So I want I want to hear your thoughts on that. And Ishan, while Pete's doing that, go to Fangraphs, look at Jake Arietta's page, and look at the uh, the velo charts, and you can see the average velocity just slowly declining over the past two seasons in a pretty alarming way. So check that out. And Pete, what are your thoughts on Arietta? So, 
you guys make great points about the salary cap. He's definitely been diminishing here over the last year, year and a half. I think what you got to remember, though, is that the Nats aren't going for him to be the, the ace of the staff like a lot of other ball clubs would be right now, or at least making him a solid number two. I mean, when you look at the national starting rotation, so we have Max Scherzer. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. He does a little something-something every so often. Uh, then you got Steven Strasburg, Gio Gonzalez, Tanner Rourke, uh, where he would be a solid number three, number four starter. Uh, and I think that that would help not only – kind of kind of get you through the the dog days of summer but it really helps the back end of that bullpen which has historically been the biggest problem for the nationals if you have a guy who can get you six seven quality innings so overall he's he's not going to win the cy young wherever he goes this year and he's not going to change the game uh in washington overnight but for me it helps the the overall rotation more than just giving me uh that dependable I'm sorry, that ace on the staff. Rather, I get a dependable number three, number four starter uh, who can help backfill a slipping Gio Gonzalez. Tanner Rourke, I think, is still kind of the unsung hero of that starting rotation. Uh, where he doesn't get a lot of love. He's the number four guy right now, so he would probably fall to number five, which means he's going to miss a few more starts. He's probably going to get knocked off every so often. But overall, it just seems like it's going to pad up that starting five uh, enough to the point that this – annually bad bullpen uh, can have a little more to go with. So for me, it's just the more, more so let's get some experience, World Series experience at that, uh, and a guy who's really performed on the biggest of stages, uh, bringing that experience to the the rotation I really like. Yeah, so... I gotta say, if I'm the Nats, I overpay for Arietta. Like, you gotta go all in on this year. Last year of Harper's contract, they get Arietta. I think there's a really... I think they... I think I would maybe call them the favorites to win the World Series with Arietta. Uh, he did like like Pete mentioned. He was amazing in games two and six of the 2016 World Series. Like really shut the Indians down on the road twice. Uh, he was really really good in his two starts last year in the playoffs. I think he gave up maybe one or two runs total across two starts against the Nats and Dodgers in the playoffs last year. He shut out the Pirates in the 2015 Wild Card game. Like Jake Arrieta, I still think. Uh, I'm going to reverse myself a little bit. I think for this next year or two, he still has ace potential. I think he's got top 10 top ten pitcher in baseball potential. When you put that with Scherzer and Strasburg, I think it gives the Nats an upside that's like really unbelievable. And they need to be going all in. Shove their chips to the center, and then if they're overpaying for Arietta in 2021, like whatever. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it's still not the Braves of the, the 90s, uh, but... Scherzer, Strasburg, and Arietta as your as your top three, and then Gio Gonzalez as your number four. Like that's that's a rotation that no one in baseball wants to mess with. Where it, yeah, I, I totally agree. Going all in, uh, you, you guys know how much I've lamented the Nationals always seeming to be playing for the next year. It would be really nice to see us committing, uh, and even if we're overpaying a little to to commit finally uh, in Washington. Also, don't forget the impact of his bat and that three-run homer off Madison Bumgarner in the 20, 2016 playoffs. He's a great, he's a really good hitter. Well, and I just love the irony of him hitting it off of Bumgarner, who's also a really good hitter. You yeah, know, uh, pitchers who rake, right? Um, yeah. So real quick, Pete actually wrote a, a piece, an open letter to the Nationals. That's on Medium.com/slash/thirdstring, and it was also picked up by the Brew City Network, Brew City Sports. Um, so check that out when you get a chance. Medium.com/slash/thirdstring. Um, but I have a couple things on the Nationals here. So one on the Arietta piece. If I am the GM of the Nationals, um, I'm going to overpay for Arietta, but I'm going to front load the contract. You know, oddly enough. So let's say, um, you know, I'll throw a number out there: three years, fifty million. 
um, you know, pay 25 million of it this year and then split the remaining 25 over the next two years. The reason being Bryce Harper uh, has free agency coming up and you want to be able to um, work within your salary cap um, or work under, I should say, under the luxury tax threshold um, to pay out the money that you're going to pay out if you want to keep him around. Um, so that's what I would do. So yeah, I agree, you know, put your chips to the center, overpay for them, but front load it to, to give up, to, to have some flexibility on the back end um, and be able to pay Harper if you want to keep him around. But if they front, I'm going to disagree a little because if they front load it, that spot track has them at 174 million right now. And I think the luxury tax threshold is 197. So if they front load it, they still have to keep it under 23 this year. And re- realistically, probably under 20 when you take into account like midseason acquisitions, et cetera. Sure, sure. Uh, because the luxury tax, my understanding is the way it works is that the penalties go up a ton if you repeat years in the luxury tax. So there's actually like this really big discontinuous jump in how costly it is to right. be at 197. Right. Uh, so I think they, they got to stay under it this year because they're going to be paying it for the length of Harper's contract if he resigns. Yeah, that's totally fair. Uh, so my, I mean, my numbers I just picked out of the air, they were arbitrary. So I mean, stay under the luxury tax threshold, you know, if, if I'm the GM, but I would still try to front load it to save, save that money for later. Um, yeah. And then the, the other things I was going to say, so two things, one good, one bad for the Nets and their chances. Um, so their lineup, Ishan, you already talked about this a little bit, really formidable. Harper, Rendon, who I wrote about a couple weeks ago, is one of the best third basemen in baseball, also um, on medium.com slash third string. Trey Turner, Daniel Murphy, Ishan, you mentioned the return of Adam Eaton. Um, even Ryan Zimmerman, who was just scorching hot the first half of last year before regressing a little bit. But that, that's those guys are, are guys that no pitcher is going to be excited to face. And so I think the Nationals have a really strong um, offensive lineup there. And then we already talked about their pitchers, and we've seen some fantastic stuff from Strasburg. We've, we've seen... Uh, some flashes from Gio Gonzalez, although the consistency hasn't been there. Tanner Roark is a favorite of mine because he's gotten me a lot of fantasy points in the past. So these guys really can perform. But again, the question is, will they? Because we've seen inconsistency from Gonzalez and Roark, and we've seen injuries from Strasburg. So it's kind of like the Red Sox rotation, I think, in that you have the the clear and above and obvious ace and Scherzer or Sale for the Red Sox. And then you have a bunch of guys who you've seen perform, you know, Purcello or Strasburg. Um, and then you have you have guys who have you know command issues or, or whatever the case is, and really it depends on on which version of the pitching staff is going to show up. So I really like the Nats' chances, um, even with Arietta though. I don't think I would call them World Series favorites. I might not even call them pennant favorites because, um, you know, how how much is Strasburg's arm going to hold up? What what are we going to get from Gonzalez and Roark? And then that bullpen. How is that you know Sean Doolittle, Ryan Madsen led bullpen going to hold up too? So um, I think there are a lot of questions on the horizon for the Nats, but. A uh, lot of lot of reason for optimism, and I think they're pretty much a lock to win the NL East. Uh, all right, so to, to wrap it up on this division or to tr- try to bring things together, I think a, a good way to frame it is uh, what do, what do you think the probability? What do you guys think the probability is that anyone is within five games of the Nets at any point on or after September first? Like even a semblance of a race in this division. It's just such a boring division to me. Like, we know the Nats are going to win. They're going to win by 15 games. They have a bad season. They're going to win by seven games. Yeah, I mean, so we have the the Marlins are the Rays of the East, right? The the fire sale in Miami. The Derek Jeter-led fire sale, um, which is why Stanton's now in New York. So they're obviously not going to be there. The Braves, not going to be there and probably not going to be there for a while since they have a lot of, uh, you know, inter- uh, penalties from the, uh, uh, what was his name, Alex Acosta era? Um, their old GM, maybe that's not the right name. I don't want to be, uh, 
Yeah, what was the name of the GM who got all the, the penalties for, he got banned from baseball? No idea. Okay, um, I'll look it up. Oh, wait, John Coppolella, yeah, sorry, not Alex Acosta. John Coppolella um, banned from baseball. So the Braves have a lot of penalties. They'll be forfeiting draft picks or international signings for the foreseeable future. Um, Phillies also not going to be contending. So it comes down to the Mets. What's the probability the Mets are within five games after September 1st? I'm going to give this a, a 25% to 30% chance. I think, um, like I said, if the Mets can stay healthy, um, they could they could challenge the Nats or at least make it a little bit interesting. Um, but the Nats also could turn on the Jets and just just run away with it. Um, they're currently projected at 90 wins. I would take the over on that for the Nats. I think they, they, they will definitely run away with the division, and I think it's less likely um, than not that anybody will be within five games of them. What do you guys think? We also got to remember. We also got to remember the unbalanced schedule. Like I think the Nats are without an Arietta signing. I think I think the Nats are maybe a 93, 94 win team. But then they play these other teams that are basically tanking like nineteen times each. Yeah, so, totally. Uh, totally. I wouldn't be surprised if the Nats are truly a ninety five win team in actual quality, but win like an absurd hundred and four games or something, just because. They're a really, really good team in a division where there's no one else competing. Yeah, I mean, I think 104 is a little bit, a little bit high, but I doubt they'll even get to 100. But I can see them like winning 99, 98. Yeah, I think if I had to guess, I would say something like 97. I'm just saying, like the right tail is pretty long, just because they play so many teams that are going to be starting minor leaguers in August. What do you think, Pete? So. So I, I do agree with you guys that the, the unbalanced schedule is really going to help the Nats out this year. I was pegging them for some reason. I was sitting on 93, 94 wins. Maybe it's just I'm naturally pessimistic when it comes to my teams. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that the, the Mets will keep it a little closer than they than, than we're giving them credit for right now. I I hope for baseball's sake that they still a little that they stay a little healthier in New York than they have in the past years. I think that rotation in New York could be okay. Not great, but yeah, I'm thinking 93-94. I did want to ask say, you guys. Oh, yeah. Can I just say one thing about the Mets is at the end of last season, I, I, I know it was Syndergaard, and I think it might have been Syndergaard and Harvey, who after being hurt basically all year, came out and threw one inning just to just as a show of good faith to the fans that like they were coming back and they like loved them and cared about them. That was so cool. I loved that. I would love for the Mets to, to get healthy and make that a fun division. Yeah, I, I think they have honestly probably the most untapped talent in the division, uh, to be honest. I think the Nationals are kind of clicking on all cylinders with their talent. I think the Mets have a lot of guys who could start achieving. Uh, and unlike the the Braves, who seem to be all in on the prospect game right now, and it's not really working out, Miami, like we mentioned, the fire sale. Uh, Philly, I'm, I'm not seeing a whole lot out of them yet, but uh, there, there just seems to be a lot of untapped potential in New York, unlike any other team in the division right now. So my, my question to you guys, so kind of the three teams we've talked about in Washington, the Yankees, and the Red Sox actually all have new managers this year in Alex Cora up in Boston, Aaron Boone in New York, and Davey Martinez coming away from the Cubs uh, to, to uh, manage the Nationals. We, we don't 
really seem to ever know what impact a manager is going to have uh, on a club before a season starts. But initial thoughts on these three guys managing their clubs. This is going to be a positive for these teams all getting fresh blood. Is there going to be a big learning curve in places like New York with Aaron Boone, who has literally no managing experience whatsoever? Is David Martinez in Washington going to make a huge difference based on his experience with the Cubs? What are your guys' initial impressions of these three new managers? My view is that baseball managers don't matter much. I think there's like 5 or 10% of managers who, you know, maybe they're really, really good at uh, understanding some sort of human element and getting guys' uh, attitudes straight, helping guys get out of slumps faster or stay out of slumps or something like that. Maybe there's 5 five or 10% of guys who do like really screw up, you know, overuse pitchers, like mess up in some identifiable, keep playing guys with like a 620 OPS and like batting them and lead off or something. Uh, so I think there's managers who really mess up and maybe an occasional manager who makes a positive difference. But I think like the middle 85% of baseball managers don't, don't matter a whole lot. Like they're not calling every play like in the NFL or, or you know, set, structuring the defense and all of the playing rotations like in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, and and they're not, you know, putting together a game plan like an NFL head coach would either. There's, there's you know, they know which pitcher is starting. They know how they want to employ their bullpen. So that's kind of as close to a game plan as you get. But yeah, Pete, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't I don't think I have a great answer on it. And I, I don't have any special insight on the three guys that you named. I mean, I, I know that the Phillies and the Yankees um, – with Gabe Kapler and Aaron Boone are really excited about their managers because of the sort of social intelligence aspect. I think these guys are going to be great leaders in the clubhouse and all of this. And I think that speaks to Ishan, your point about the importance of a manager who can do that. But I mean, ultimately, I think if you put, if you put, you know, anybody in a manager's uniform and put him in the dugout, I think the game would still be played and it would still be played pretty effectively because these, these players know how to do their jobs. But I think the two things that I would look for in a manager as a GM one is his social intelligence, his ability to lead. Can he do that? Is he going to understand player psychology and be able to you know, get players out of slumps or resolve conflicts in the clubhouse, those sorts of things? And the second is, how, how willing is this manager going to be to um, embrace, embrace new ways to look at the game? And I think that's been borne out time and time again in the last decade and a half. Uh, just you know, how, how willing is this manager to do something that's not been done before or to you know, practice novel positioning or to you know, play, uh, play a four-man outfield or to employ the shift, uh, when to employ the shift, those sorts of things. Put, so Put your closer in in the sixth inning. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> because the, the closer is uh, is not, you know, should be used in a high leverage situation as opposed to just closing in the ninth inning because the closer is the closer. Um, uh, ben, Lern- ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller talk about that in their book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which is a great baseball book. Highly recommend it. But yeah, so, so those sorts of things are what I look for in a, in a manager or what I would look for in a manager. Whether or not these three guys uh, meet those criteria, I, I guess, remains to be seen. So that was kind of a rambling answer, Pete. I didn't really answer the question, but uh, I guess we'll see. Should we have a couple minutes of garbage time? Yeah, let's do it. Move to garbage time. What do you got? I just have a little bit of sympathy for Louisville because that Virginia-Louisville game last weekend was just, I think, the most crushing finish to a basketball game. Context aside, the most crushing finish to a basketball game I've ever seen. Uh, Louisville was up four with the clock running down. With under a second left, they fouled a three-point shooter up four. If he just shot the shot, there's no possible way for them to lose. The guy made two free throws, missed the third, and went out of bounds to uh, to Virginia, 
or sorry, sorry, to Louisville. So they had the ball then out of bounds up two with 0.9 seconds left. They traveled so that the inbounder ran down the baseline and he wasn't allowed to because it wasn't after a made basket. So they gave the ball back to Virginia up two with 0.9 seconds left. And Virginia banked in a 25-foot three to win by one at the buzzer after trailing by four with under a second left. So that was pretty crushing. And especially because Joe Lenardi had Louisville as the second-to-last team in in bracketology. So that... 0.9 second fiasco could literally end their season. Uh, so that was just a crazy, crazy end to a basketball Amazing. game. So I thought it was Amazing. worth mentioning. Don't, don't don't forget the ref and the bench uh, yelling on that inbounds play, do not move, do not move. And after three seconds of desperation, taking that first step. Oh, it was, it was heartbreaking to watch no matter which team you're rooting for. I don't think I've ever seen a basketball game end like that. I was watching that one live. Oh, that was that was something. UVA was down by like twelve with six minutes left in that game. It was, it didn't look like it was going to be close. I don't know if it was just a sign that this is UVA's year to finally do something, or just the ultimate choke. But oh man, I'm I'm with you. That was something to watch. I have like three more garbage time topics that are all like twenty seconds long, but I'll let all you right, guys get get one. No, let's let's go for it. All right, just rapid fire. Uh, it really annoyed me, Lamar Jackson, when they were trying to make him do wide receiver drills at the combine. Yeah. Won a Heisman. Was I think he was a finalist for another Heisman. He's a great quarterback. And, uh, you know, we have that whole podcast. Uh, I, I cited all that research on biased about black quarterbacks a few months ago, and I think this was just a great example. I also saw a tweet. I don't remember who tweeted this, so I can't give them credit. I also saw a tweet that was like, you know, if Lamar Jackson had had a DUI and grabbed his nether regions while swearing at the other team on national TV, like, would people really be willing to draft him in the top five as another uh, Heisman winning quarterback is going to be drafted most likely? Uh, so that was annoying. Uh, cool little garbage time fact from the NFL Combine is that uh, Harrison Phillips from Stanford, who I am always going to uh, – pump up as my team uh so far has led all combined people with 42 reps at 225 pounds on the bench press and uh there was a really funny exchange on twitter where someone tweeted in response to Stuart mandel from the athletic one of our nation's leading college football reporters yeah looks like someone wasn't spending was wasn't spending any time in the library in college uh in response to that incredible performance in the weight room and mandel retweeted it was like you mean the guy who graduated two quarters early with a double major from stanford so that was fun Smoked. and harrison phillips was one of my favorite players in the history of stanford football and uh i hope he has a great nfl career and gets drafted in the first round so that's what I got for garbage time. What do you guys got? All right. So two things. Um, first on the bench press combine. So Saquon Barkley did 29 reps at 225, and he jumped 41 inches for his vert, and he ran a 441.40. Um, so wow. this guy is incredible. I mean, I, I think he is potentially a generational talent at running back, uh, faster and heavier than Zeke Elliott was uh, a couple years ago. I mean, this guy's special, and it's going to be really fun to watch him. Uh, as a Penn State fan, it's been fun to watch him in college, and I've seen a lot of him, and it's going to be really fun to watch him at the next level. We'll see where he goes. I mean, I don't think the Giants will take him. I think they'll get a quarterback. I think it's possible he goes to the Browns, um, possibly goes to the Colts, um, and I think him on the Colts would be really fun to see. So, uh, so I don't know. We'll see about that. On your uh, Lamar Jackson point, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's well taken, but I will say that. You know, I, I would say that a lot of people don't think Lamar Jackson is an NFL quarterback 
um, precisely because they see him, you know, running for a lot of touchdowns and passing for a lot of touchdowns. And the type of quarterback we see do that, you know, Johnny Menzel, for example, has not been successful by and large in the NFL. Um, and so from my own from my own vantage point, I think Baker Mayfield is not an NFL quarterback, and I don't think he'll have success in the NFL. I think Lamar Jackson could, um, but I think it remains to be seen. I, I just I'm trying to think of a quarterback. Um, you know, Michael Vick, I think, did it. Um, but more often than not, it's failed when that type of play has been tried, you know, has been imported into the NFL. What about Russell, Russell Wilson, Cam Newton? Um, so Cam Newton, I think New- Newton had like 20 rushing touchdowns his last year of college. So um, wait, who, who did Newton? Yeah. yeah. So I think Cam Newton, my response to Cam Newton is that I don't think his play is, is going to work out for him long term. Like, I think he has already peaked and I think, um, you know, he's starting to show the results of getting hit a lot. Um, at the line, behind the line, and you know, as he's running in for a touchdown, I mean, um, multiple concussions already in his career. Um, his his passing stats were lower this past season, probably because of all those hits. So I also just don't think that's what people are wanting in their quarterbacks now. Um, but but I mean, overall, you're right. I would also just point out that this is not something that's only happened to um, to uh, African American quarterbacks. I mean, I think of Jordan Lynch at Northern Illinois University, who um, went undrafted in the 2014 NFL draft, and then was asked by the Bears to switch to running back because they just said he he wouldn't be a professional um, quarterback. Um, so, and you know, he- I'm not saying it. It doesn't have to only. Also, uh, I should mention Tyrod Taylor, Dak Prescott also ran a lot in college and are also. Uh, you know, we can debate how well Deshaun Watson ran ran a ton at Clemson too, and had a really good rookie season before yeah, blowing out his ACL. Sure, sure. I but, wouldn't say it, it doesn't need to only happen to black quarterbacks. It just needs to happen disproportionately to black black quarterbacks. Yeah, that's totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah, I, I think we agree. But we'll see. I mean, I would like Lamar Jackson to get drafted as a quarterback because I'm I'm curious. I mean, he um, I, I think he might have the tools to be a passer. Uh, you know, a, a pocket passer. Or maybe not a po- maybe not a pocket passer, maybe more like a um, like a Dak Prescott. And I, obviously, Dak's been successful, less so this past year, but but very much so the first year. Um, or or Russell Wilson, I could maybe see Lamar Jackson being a Russell Wilson, um, you know, coming from the ACC, I, just like Wilson did. So I think it'd be really cool. I would love to see a team take a flyer on him um, and and try it out. Um, the Eagles, by the way, interviewed Lamar Jackson, so you know that'd be pretty cool if the Eagles drafted him as a QB. But but we'll see. I should also mention I forgot I forgot Marcus Mariota, who I think might have had the most similar college career of any of these guys to Jackson in terms of yeah, and being I, a dual threat. I, I, but I think that I think that um, backs up my claim because Mariota's not been very successful in the NFL, and and he's had injury problems as well for the same reasons, and his his passing stats haven't been great. I mean, um, so yeah, so I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. I would like to see Lamar Jackson be drafted as a quarterback, though. Because, you know, obviously it has worked in some cases, like Russell Wilson, I think the best example that you pointed out. So if, uh, if Lamar Jackson could go do the Russell Wilson thing for another NFL team, that'd be awesome. All right. Pete, do you have anything for garbage time? I think we're, we're getting a little long now. Yeah. Last thing I was going to bring up that we don't even really need to debate, but just something for, for you guys to take away here over the next few weeks. So the Mark Schleboth bombshell last Friday night about uh, Sean Miller at Arizona hasn't necessarily been retracted, but some timelines have changed about whether or not he was on the phone discussing uh, payments to players with agents, uh, when exactly the wiretap was conducted. Overall, it's it's just been a crazy week and a half in college basketball. And as much fun as the tournaments are right now, uh, the 
crazy finishes between UNC and Miami. You brought up the, the Louisville-Virginia finish. Uh, there, there's still this cloud hanging over it, and we just can't seem to get past uh, these these down times in college basketball. So I'm looking forward to really getting into the heart of tournament season and hopefully putting some of this stuff behind us. I don't know if we'll ever really figure out what's going on with, with some of these investigations. This might not be a, a couple-week thing. This could be a couple-year thing. So hopefully for the sake of the sport, we move on and uh, get get something good here going forward. But I've been pretty disappointed here over the last week, week and a half, that these bombshell reports are still getting retracted and changed. And I, I trust the reporting, but not necessarily all the details anymore. So I, I'm, I don't know what to think about it anymore. I'm a little disappointed. Well, I'm going to use that to segue into closing this off and uh, saying that our next episode, we will continue our MLB stuff soon, uh, moving to uh, NL and AL Central and then West. But our next episode is going to be a March Madness discussion, so you can find us uh, doing that in our next episode. That'll be released uh, probably next week sometime. Um, so in the meantime, you can check us out, anchor.fm slash thirdstring. That's 3RD string. You can follow us on Twitter at thirdstringpod. I'm at Zach Crippen. Ishan is at Ishan underscore Nath. And Pete is at Pete LeCleed. You can also reach out, thirdstringpod at gmail.com or provide us feedback right through the Anchor app. Uh, and let us know if you want to be in our Fantasy Baseball League. Definitely let us uh, leave us a note. Uh, we look forward to playing with you. Like I said, we've got about a dozen openings there. So definitely jump in early so we can get you on the 